0: Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumphs, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin A More Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey, everybody. Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 95 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So I'm here in my forever messy office on a beautiful sunny day. <laughs> I forget each summer how difficult it is to record podcasts in the summer because you have to come inside. <laughs> so I'm looking out all my windows at all the beautiful, finely, full, fully leafed trees and the blue sky and knowing that our fabulous blue rubber pool is now set up in the yard. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about community and probably not in the way that that you might think, I mean, we all as humans strive to find where we fit in, go back to the cafeteria at school and you want to have a table that you can sit at, that you feel like you're welcomed, that there's somebody to talk to, that you are with a group of people that accept you for who you are. And so as humanity morphs and changes and, and constructs and definitions no longer fit the way they did a generation or two ago, sometimes community can get tricky we see this all the time with political communities we see it with racial communities we see it with financial communities we see it with religious communities family communities and we see it now more than ever with gender communities and so when you redefine what something looks like or you suddenly don't fit into any of the holes cuz none of them match the shape of your peg right the square peg round hole thing it can be very divisive and i see this all the time and i come into life like anyone else with with my realities and how I feel about myself and who I am and what I believe. And I try very hard not to impose my beliefs on other people because ultimately I don't live inside of anyone else. I don't live inside anyone's heart or their mind or their body. I live inside of me and that's it. So ultimate empathy is very, very interesting sometimes. So I'm recording this on the very last day of May. So tomorrow is June. Yay. And it's amazing. I know that in the infinity of time, This millisecond between May 31st and June 1st is nothing, but it is such a weight lifted off my shoulders when the month of May is over. Not that I stopped being sad about Molly, but it's just the pressures off. The word May just brings with it now so many, so many sadnesses and so many heartbreaks. And in regard to Molly, the heartbreaks that came in June and July were much more Roy based and those are easier to intellectualize and approach cognitively as time goes by. There will be nothing ever cognitive or intellectually normal about Molly's death. This is sort of something I travel along. So I have a list here in front of me of all the different ways that we find community, that we, that we identify with people. And so I'll start with money. I live in a pretty provincial town. I live in Northern New England or Central New England, I guess. I always say that Concord is like a middle school cafeteria. You can never escape the table you sat at when you were 12. And the table in my town would be the neighborhood you grew up in, the park that you played in, the elementary school you went to. Now, we've done what all small towns do is we've grown and we've consolidated and combined. So a lot of the real beauty of the neighborhoods that existed when I was growing up no longer exists. When I was growing up, every neighborhood had a walking distance school and a walking distance park. And you really identified with that part of town, which is a wonderful thing, but it can also be very divisive if you're never sort of crossing the track, so to speak, to a park not near where you live. So money oftentimes dictates where people live. There's a neighborhood in Concord, and for a long time, it was called Mortgage Hill. And the reason it was called Mortgage Hill, is it's this beautiful wide street with beautiful sidewalks and trees and ginormous Victorian era style houses, or lots of different styles, but they were built between 1850 and 1920, I would say. And these homes are large and beautiful, wood paneling, mahogany interiors, turrets, classic architectural gems. And these were the first homes in Concord that were built on a mortgage. So for some of you listening, you might not know that back in the day, you didn't build a house all at once. You didn't borrow money and build your house quickly. You lived in a tent or the back of a cabin, a back of a wagon or in a little cabin on your land, and you built your house as you could buy the stuff to build it. So you dug a foundation and then you lined the foundation either with granite or whatever stone you were going to use. And you did that as you could afford it. And then you built a floor over it and maybe the first floor and you roofed that. Maybe you tarp roofed it. Maybe you thatch roofed it but you built your house as you could afford it. Or if you were purchasing a house that was already built, you also purchased a house that you could afford. There was no such thing as mortgages and banks lending you money to do this. And so this neighborhood in Concord sort of represents those who could afford a mortgage. (laughs) The more money you have, the more you can go into debt, I guess, right? That's a distinct neighborhood. A lot of the neighborhoods in my town have nicknames. There's a neighborhood called Fosterville, and it's based on a family with the last name of Foster that lived in that, sort of developed that neighborhood way back when. There's all sorts of little nicknames for the different areas in Concord. And each neighborhood, each geographical location has its own sort of unique history. And it's just an interesting thing to ponder as growth and change changes it and alters what it was like. Do I wish it was the same as it was when I was a little girl? No, not really. Because I know that you were only defined by your elementary school in your park on many, many levels when I was a little girl. And to break out of that definition, that sort of confine of your reality was not easy. Concord has several public swimming pools. But if, if you had the money, you went to two private swimming pools. There's one at the country club and one called Capoco. There's nothing wrong with those places. They're beautiful places, but they attract a very, very specific kind of person. And so if you aren't that specific kind of person, you don't go there. And so those kinds of exclusions are tricky now and they're hard to justify. People will, but, but I notice that it's different. So I have this, you know, lawsuit that I settled that suddenly makes me, I guess, in many eyes, very, very wealthy. I don't consider myself wealthy. And if you looked at my home and the style of car I drive and the fact that I haven't bought new clothes in five years, you wouldn't know that I would settle that had any sort of financial settlement with anyone at all. I'm not a money person. I'm uncomfortable with it. I don't mind having my bills paid. I certainly like having enough money to buy food, but I have had times in my life where I couldn't do either of those things. And so having lived on both sides of that issue, I find the middle to be the healthiest place to be. Nobody should live in extreme poverty and nobody should have so much money that they don't know what to do with it. If you don't know what to do with it, invest in programs that help people that don't have enough. That's not socialistic giving money to lazy people like some of my relatives would say. I'm just saying, anything on too far on either side of any issue becomes divisive and dangerous. We have to have room in our hearts to at least acknowledge and understand that there are all ways to view things. My money reality is that I certainly have enough money to buy a big house on Mortgage Hill if I wanted to, to buy a membership at a fancy pool, <laughs> or you know, wear designer clothes and drive a brand new Audi, but I don't. I drive my jalopy of a Subaru and my Crocs that I'm wearing. This past weekend was Memorial Day weekend. It was a while ago now, but my brother Jeffrey passed away. And my brother Jeffrey didn't know that I was his sister. He might have thought so, but for a long time in his life. And that's because family for me has been very much redefined. Speak to anyone who was adopted, speak to anyone who has been in foster care, speak to anyone who was raised by relatives that aren't their own, speak to anyone who has lost a member of their family, and thus redefined how their family functions. Family, when I was a little girl, was shown in textbooks that I read as a mommy, a daddy, and children, and perhaps a pet. My family never had pets because I'm allergic to everything. So that did set me apart sometimes. But that was it. Anything that was different than that was a family that was different. Most of my neighbors, when I was growing up, parents were all married. The divorce rate was much lower when I was little. Does that mean that marriages were better then? I don't think so. I think like any entity that grows and develops and changes, the expectations of the roles of husband and wife, partner and partner have changed. And that in that growth, sometimes marriages end. Sometimes they get stronger. My mother grew up a generation ahead of me, a true boomer born in 1942, and her parents divorced in the 50s. And that was a huge social stigma for her because nobody's parents were divorced when she was growing up. And that set her apart immediately. And that was a dissolution of, of her sort of traditional family. Some of her siblings lived with the grandmother, some lived with their dad, some lived with their mom. So she didn't have this nuclear family under one roof anymore. What she had was a, was a divided family. Was my mother loved? Of course. And you know our families fairly consistently get together. So it didn't dissolve completely that reality, but it wasn't a normal family. My family wasn't normal. We had divorce in my family, but that wasn't the biggest thing. The biggest thing for, for me growing up was that I had a mother and a father and four siblings, and there was my family, except my brother and I have a biologically different father. And without telling my mother's story, we all can figure out how that happened. We found out in our teenage years that biologically speaking, we had another family. As we went into adulthood, and and as my biological father divorced and remarried, and I have a younger sister, all of us siblings decided that it made no sense, that yes, family-wise, we were very different. My three oldest siblings had a mother and father and them, and that was their reality. And that's the reality in which they grew up. That was their life. My brother and I didn't come along until they were all in their late teens or early 20s or even mid 20s. So they have their family memories that are strong for them. Then there's my brother and I, Jonathan and I, and we have our family memories that are completely different than theirs, even though we share the same biology. And then there's Eleanor who had the same dad but yet another mom, and her whole childhood and upbringing was completely different. But the thread that connects us is the biology, the male DNA, our dad, our bio dad. And I remember talking to Martha about it once, my oldest sister, and her comment was, you are no less related to my grandma Lois, or grandpa Ernest, or auntie Gin, or auntie Barbara, right? she had all these relatives on her dad's side of the family, and she's not more related to them than I am. I'm equally related, biologically speaking, on ancestry DNA to all those people as she is. And, and this was an eye-opener for her, a redefinition of family. Now, our families are still very, very separate and divided. At Jeffrey's funeral, I felt incredibly honored to be considered a sibling worthy of mention in an obituary. And I'm not being snarky here. You have all the social constructs of infidelity and and what's the right thing to do? And what's the wrong thing to do? And Jeffrey was our brother and I had developed a relationship with him. Eleanor and I spent time with him when she would come up here and visit. And so here I am at a funeral with with a pile of relatives that I've never met, but we're all related. And I have to say the welcoming was wonderful. Eleanor and I definitely felt most connected when we are standing nearby because we have a history together that we don't have with everyone else that that knew our dad before we were even born. It was just an interesting reality, but it's a redefinition of family. So what is family? Is family DNA? Is family who raises you, nature versus nurture? Is family who gets legal guardianship of you? I would have to say family is all those things, but the issue that can't be forgotten is one does not negate the other. So I was raised by a father and I have a biological father. So I have two fathers, two father figures in my life yes, only one of them can be my biological father and one of them is my legal father. So neither of them sort of lose out on their role as my father. I don't know if that makes sense or even what I'm trying to say here. Obviously my biological father knew of my legal father. Mr. Higgins did not know of my biological father until I was a young adult. None of this was easy for anyone in my family to take and that's the reason I share it. Change is difficult. Change is sometimes blindsiding in terms of what we've assumed to be true. I know that people who are adopted and don't know about it from the very beginning often have a very hard time coping with the fact that they're adopted. I worked at a private special ed school, and I think I've mentioned this before, a special education school that dealt primarily with kids that were either on the spectrum a little bit or just having real social, social issues and emotional issues that were interfering with their ability to learn. And in a very small school, a very large percentage of these kids were adopted. Does that mean anyone that adopts a child is going to have a troubled teenager? No. But the desire for us to know where we came from and who we are is huge. And if there's something missing or something that doesn't seem right, there's a long process and a journey there. And it's one that we have to pay attention to. An adoptive parent cannot negate a birth parent. They both exist. And putting a child in the middle of those two realities can be impossible. And so being at that funeral just made me really redefine family. You know, I look at Kenny's family, his kids, and they're very, very traditional. They very much function in the, here are the steps and here how, here is how you follow the steps. Does it mean they're closed-minded? I don't know. I don't think so. I would have to say no, but I do know that <laughs> Kenny's son, every time he sees Jack, says, tell your dad to cut your hair. Jack has this beautiful long hair. And his son, Davey, is just hell-bent on Jack having his hair cut. I don't know. It's beautiful. <laughs> I don't want to cut it maybe that's me imposing my love of blonde curls onto jack but he doesn't seem to be bothered by his hair just yet so we'll leave it be but again we look at things that make us comfortable definitions and constructs how do we frame things and where do we feel comfortable in that frame today the 31st of may i went to my obgyn dr Shottery, and he's the local ob that cared for me while i was pregnant with jack and would have delivered him if he hadn't gone away on vacation i just had a checkup i'm still nursing i I'd, I'd like to rethink some hormonal therapy I was on before I was nursing Jack, you know, just a a sort of a wellness check. And we talked for a long time about my desire to have another baby. And it's not like it was when I had Jack and had this pervasive, persistent dream that I should have a baby. But I look at Jack and his entire family as adults. He has relatives. He has two uncles that probably are more like cousins that are his age, and he loves spending time with both of them. And when they're together, it's beautiful, but they aren't together all the time. And so sometimes I just worry that, that he'll sort of feel, especially as he gets older, like who do I hang out with at home? It was my main reason for having Molly, quite honestly, is I didn't want Gracie to be all by herself, this little baby in a house full of grown-ups. And here I am 20 years later facing the same thing. But we talked at length about it, about what is age and why do we use age as a definition of something? Why should women only be allowed to try to have a baby in a certain age bracket? Who's decided that? I don't feel that a lot of female doctors necessarily decided that or female insurance executives or female scientists but here I am imposing specific prejudice on a group of people that I don't know. As much as I feel that way I don't know that that's the truth but I do know that I will be 60 this summer and that if I could find a doctor if I could find a clinic and I could go through the steps to see if I could have another child I would. Am I announcing my intention to do that? I am not. But always I have tested my body. I have defied it. And I think that comes sometimes from hating it so much as a child. Children who are abused sexually are often big time body haters because we just feel let down and don't have a lot of trust, A, in our body and what it does and B, how we feel it's let us down, if that makes sense. Overcoming asthma to run was a way that I showed my body who's boss, right? Every time I step into a CrossFit gym and do something that a a woman my age shouldn't be able to do, I feel like I have this amazing victory, not just for me, but also for women everywhere. You know, we shouldn't necessarily be defined by these things. Having said that, we also can't let our definitions and who we are directly hurt or impose upon or deny someone else the same things that they're seeking, if that makes sense. So if my having a baby at 57 were to deny a 27-year-old woman the same choice, I would have to rethink my responsibility and my reality around, should I have another baby or not? I don't know if this makes sense. It's hard. Sometimes it's hard for me to really put together what I'm trying to say. There are those who definitely feel that a woman my age has no business trying to have a baby. It's not my place to tell people how to feel, it just isn't. There are many reasons why a 60-year-old woman might not be as good a mother as a 30-year-old woman, for example. But there are also many reasons why a 60-year-old woman might be a better mother. I think ultimately these decisions come down to biology, come down to the integrity of the human body. Is my body at age 60 capable of growing a baby in a healthy way? Is my body at age 60 capable of maintaining a pregnancy without causing me or the baby injury? This is where my age does matter. As much as I don't want it to, I wouldn't embark on something that would endanger myself or the baby inside me if it were clear that it was the wrong thing to do. I might not like it and I might have to work around it. I might invest in ways to see what we can do to make 60 year old bodies more able to have babies. But there's so much that goes into it. And in my conversation with, with Dr. Chattery was wonderful, you know, and he just laughed and he goes, I get it. I don't think you're nuts. I, your body makes no sense. You have this amazing female body that does things other female bodies don't. And aren't you lucky? And I guess I am lucky because I went to college for free and I had an amazing life traveling around because of my body and its ability to run fast. I have an amazing life in the CrossFit community and I gave birth to a child at 57. I'm lucky. I've also had <laughs> disc surgeries and brain tumors and mouth surgery and and foot surgery and a hernia surgery and my tonsils taken out. And clearly my body isn't always there for me. I have chronic illness and everything else, but it all balances out in the end. So for me, age is a number and I don't like being told no, just because of my age, there needs to be more questions. Religion is, is another, big, another big area that can be divisive. And I will be very careful here, not to sound preachy. I, I'm a firm believer in faith. So whether you are a practicing Christian, a practicing Buddhist, practicing Hindu, a practicing Baha'i, a practicing Jew, a practicing Zoroastrian, a practicing Muslim, there are so many ways that God shows us to himself. This is my opinion and my belief. And I have faith that I'm right. I'm not saying I am. That people that live anywhere in, the world, anywhere in the world can find something that reflects the notion of God in them and find a way to worship and to live a life of service. When I became a Baha'i, which is my religion, one of the prerequisites was really to become well-versed in all the religions because Baha'is accept them all. A major belief in the Baha'i faith is that revelation is progressive that God sends messengers as humanity needs them and to places that humanity needs them and in a way that humanity can accept them. And so a lot of how we can believe somebody is a messenger of God is, is if not only can we see God in that messenger, but can we see ourselves? This is, a, in my mind, an integral piece of what makes a religious organization or doctrine work for its followers. I think anyone who's invested in their religion with love and an air of gratitude and service and humility isn't being brainwashed at all i don't particularly like being told what to do and and some religions make me feel that way it's just to me another illustration of the way that people can learn and grow and get together having said that religion is probably one of the most divisive issues in our country right now people deciding or assuming that their religious beliefs should be the the religious beliefs of everybody and if, if you're that sure you're right, what a wonderful thing. But rather than become a tutorial imposer of your beliefs on others because you know you're right, the humble God-like thing to do in my mind, or the, even the humble human-like thing to do in my mind, would be to step back and pray and meditate for those around you to see the light as you think they should see it. I will never turn down a heartfelt prayer. I feel that prayers in general create this invisible music that sort of binds the molecules of the world together. That's what I think. But something that's supposed to unite us, there's a Baha'i quote that says, so powerful is the light of unity that, that it can light and ignite the whole world. So does unity mean we give up who we are to fit in with other people? No, I think unity means we figure out how to all get together with our clear differences and make room for everybody. I don't talk about religion much, and this will never be a religious podcast. I'm not trying to push my agenda on anybody. I guess that's it. I try to share my agenda. If I have one, I try to share how I feel. I'm honest about my horrifyingly wonderful life experiences. And I like to share that I'm a Baha'i. I I am an imperfect Baha'i. I I don't follow all the social suggestions that Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the faith makes for us. But I do try really hard to step back and, and analyze myself. The final area that I'll talk about, and I talk about it, because I just ran a half marathon, it took me three hours, my physical body. I talk about it because I spend a lot of time, I'm going to talk about gender here, because I spend a lot of time defying my own. And I have often thought that the feminist movement sort of trashed any hope for an easy transition into equality for women and men from the get-go. Because in my mind, looking back on it, I was a little girl in the 60s, the bra burning and the we can do anything men can do. How I feel is that What we did was we got rid of our femininity. We took off the bras, we stopped wearing the dresses, we put on the pants. I feel like what we did was we tried to emulate men to prove that we could be just like them, which is, I think, how humanity perhaps felt that women would be accepted. Oh, they are just as good as men. When the question shouldn't be that way at all, maybe the question should be, are men just as good as women? And what does it mean to have gender equity and equality of women and men and the women's rights movement? I grew up in a time, I was talking to my superintendent the other day, I was at a meeting in a room that was my third grade classroom. And I got sent home from school for wearing a lederhosen because a lederhosen is a Swiss outfit and it's shorts and it's traditionally worn by little boys, but I loved it. And I wore it to school. This was 1970-ish. And I got sent home. I had to come back with a dress on because at that time, girls still had to wear dresses to school. I think the very next year, my third grade year, I didn't have to wear, you could wear pants. And I was horrified. Like it's, it's a later hose and it's culturally, I can do a cartwheel here and nobody will see my underpants. But that was the reality for women and men. And, and, and so by imposing a set of definitions on males and imposing a set of definitions on females, what we do is we take away any room for people who agree with their given assigned gender, any room to have variation in it. Why is it only women that are allowed to cry publicly? Why, when a guy does it, Is it considered weak? Why, when a boy in a group of boys is the weakest one, he's called a sissy or a pussy. Those are words that that describe women. So why is the weakest boy insulted with a word that means women? These are things that go through my mind all the time. I look at what does the female body and the male body, how does it actually matter in being a judge on a Supreme Court or being a secretary in an office or delivering milk or delivering mail or driving a truck? or baking a cake, or running a restaurant, or editing a podcast, or writing a book, or being a news anchor, or being a TV star or a movie star, or acting in a play or playing a musical instrument, or running in a race, or lifting weights, or moving furniture, or fighting a fire, carrying a body out of a burning building, fighting a war. So many things bring into play questions about gender, and how we should define it or not define it. I can't talk much about Molly's death, but I feel the fact that she was a 13 year old girl who was super skinny played a very big role in what medical professionals assumed about her. I feel in the medical profession, we look at gender when we shouldn't, and we ignore it when we shouldn't. So when do we ignore it? Any testing company that tests medication completely ignores gender. 90% of medicines that men and women take are only tested on men. Why is this? Because the hormones that govern the female reality make testing drugs complicated. There are too many variables that will say yes or no, this drug will work. So if it works on guys, we can assume that a lesser dose will work equally well on gals. This is science for us. This is changing, but not like you would think. I have a relative that works in a lab that does testing on lab animals around medications and testing even on female mice and rats and the things that these medicines are tested on. Testing on females takes longer and costs more money because our bodies inside are much more complex. They're designed not only to sustain our own lives, but to grow and sustain another life. And so that creates an inequity. Men and women are not treated equally in medical issues because most of the medicine assigned and given to women was never tested on women. That's hard to take sometimes, makes me a little leery of medication. I feel that Molly's gender was paid attention to in ways that detracted from her symptoms. She was vomiting, she had a numb tongue, she was dizzy, she had headaches, she got dizzy when she stood up in the morning. All of these things, when looking at Molly, were attributed to things that had nothing to do with the tumor in her head that nobody knew was there. If one doctor had said, What would I assume if Molly was Mark and Molly was a boy and had all these symptoms? What might I think is wrong there? Maybe I'll test for those things. That never happened. And that one mistake over making an assumption on gender, I believe was a major factor in the fact that Molly's tumor was never discovered. Biology is tricky. It's very, very tricky. I have a lot of emotional feelings around athletics. And I don't have an opinion right now. I posted on Facebook and I regret it because of course it came off in a way that I didn't want it to. And so I took the post down. But what I remember about being a little girl when it comes to athletics is that I wasn't allowed to play in sports because I was a girl. I didn't have a penis. Some of the more athletic girls, some of the bigger, stronger girls could try out for a boys team and often were included and allowed to play. I can't imagine that felt very good to the boys on the team, especially if there was a boy who lost his spot to that girl because sports back then were for boys. They weren't called boys sports. It wasn't boys baseball. It was just baseball, but girls didn't play. So when I was a little girl, Parks and Rec didn't offer anything for girls. Little boys played little league and t-ball. There was no t-ball or little league for girls. There was no softball at that age at that time. Those activities for girls didn't come into play until I was maybe in late elementary school and middle school. When I was at Runlet and at Concord High School, there was cheerleading, there was field hockey. Girls wore skirts in that. There was track in the spring by the time I was in middle school, but only just. There was girls basketball and boys basketball, and there was softball, and that was it. At Runlet, there was no cross country in the fall for girls. The only Runlet sport in the fall was field hockey or cheerleading. Those were sort of your two choices. I'm glad it's different now. When I went into high school, there were still minimal choices for girls. There was no soccer until my senior year. And even then it was a club sport. And the high school English teacher that coached it, Bob Cowan, did it on a voluntary basis. There were like 36 girls on that soccer team. It was huge. Some of my friends that had run across country went out for soccer instead. Why not? They were the first Concord High School. Their picture made it into the yearbook. That was the fall of 1980. That was my senior year. I never knew a reality without track. And what I liked most about track was as a little girl that hated her body and had a big fear of male bodies for logical reasons. And who always felt left out because I had really bad asthma and couldn't breathe and tried all the sports I could try. There was club swimming and there were girls and boys swimming. And so I, I swam and, and there was recreational skiing. You could go skiing and take ski lessons. And I, so I skied. I did those sorts of things. I hiked with my family. So I had athletic endeavors, but nothing where I was on an actual sports team. And Coach Lutie started the first ever girls track team at Concord High School. And that was 1975. I was 12 years old then. So for the first 12 years of my life, there was no track team for girls. At the time he started that team, there were only one or two other schools in the state that had track. Hanover High School. And I know that up in Maine, Cape Elizabeth, Joni Benoit, my college coach, she she had a track team to compete on. And I know also that schools got together. If they didn't have enough girls to make a team from their own school, they combined. So between two or three different high schools, you'd have enough young ladies to have a team. All through high school, when it was clear that I was an amazing runner, that I was running really well for a girl against all the other girls, forget running well for a girl. I was just running well. Now, my times on the boys team wouldn't have placed in any meets at all. By the time I was a senior, I think I might have been the number five runner on the boys cross-country team, but that's insanely fast for a girl. And that cross-country team was solid, but not as good as some others around the state. But I do remember thinking like, dang, I'd be fifth. (laughs) I was pretty proud of that. I remember thinking it would be nice to get a scholarship to college, but when I was in 10th and 11th and 12th grade, the NCAA had not yet decided to accept female athletic programs as their responsibility in colleges. There was the AIAW, the American Interscholastic Association for Women. And it was a governing body for women's sports in colleges, but it was very poorly funded and it didn't provide scholarships ever. It provided championship events so that if you were running for a college, you'd have meets to go to and compete against other women. But colleges didn't have to have women's sports. There was no mandate that there even needed to be sports for women. So I I thought, well, that's not fair just because I have a vagina here. (laughs) Why do I not get to compete? But I was never gonna be fast enough to get a scholarship on a men's team because biologically speaking, men and women are very different when it comes to tasks of the body. So my senior year was big news for Title IX. Title IX became official and officially made it unacceptable for girls to be kept out of sports simply because they're girls. The NCAA had to provide programs for women. So they did not put us on men's teams. They created women's teams. So that was a huge step in the right direction. I remember applying to several colleges and choosing colleges that were going to have NCAA scholarships available. Took colleges a long time, left up to the colleges to fund these sports. The NCAA didn't suddenly give money. Title IX didn't award colleges money to now pay for women's sports. So here's what happened. I got a full scholarship to college, as well I should have. I was fast enough. I was the first high school girl to break five minutes in the mile in the state of New Hampshire ever, and that was in 1981, and I think there's only been maybe 12 or 13 girls since then who have gotten under five in the mile. That is hugely, impossibly difficult for a high school girl. I got my scholarship to college, as did six other women. I remember riding the van to cross-country camp in the fall of 1981 and feeling so excited that I was a full scholarship athlete as an NCAA athlete at a division one university. It just made, it validated all my hard work. And I remember in the fall, we got some animosity from some of the male athletes, the male football players specifically. Now they had to have a girl's locker room and now they had to have all these, a wing under the building of old locker rooms. They built new locker rooms for the men and we were given the old men's locker rooms. And so there was a big group shower room. Girls don't have group showers. And the best way I can share why is that if you're having a your period and you have a tampon string hanging out of your vagina, you don't want to stand in front of other people. So you don't want to bathe in front of people. Or if you don't use tampons and you're having a your period, you don't want to bleed in front of other people. That might sound gross, but that's the reality of it. So that was a different shower situation for us. It was difficult. I mean, sometimes we didn't care, but it was just, it was one of those things that was just really strange. There was some animosity from some of the male athletes. And when I asked, the athletic director to explain that to me, it actually was an assistant athletic director, this amazing man that was a prisoner of war for like 30 years. Anyway, he was an amazing human being. And he just said, well, BU athletics isn't well-funded. And so we had to give up some male sports to afford the female sports. So in the eyes of the football team that only lasted two more years at BU and then wasn't continued, and in the eyes of Several sports at colleges nationwide. men's sports were cut because they had to have an equal number of opportunities, opportunities for men and women. So I get it. I wouldn't have liked that. Why should I stop playing baseball as a guy because there isn't a women's softball team? Like, what does one have to do with the other? And it was funding. Again, as somebody that was a little bit behind all of this, I see that as an incredibly divisive tactics. All that did was set up resentment from men around women taking their money and their athletic programs from their colleges that had been there all the time. BU had football forever and ever, and then it didn't. As a woman, I feel very grateful that BU was willing to to do all of these things so that I could have a seat at the table so that there was a girls track team, a women's track team for me. But was it fair to have to cut men's programs to make that happen? Oh, heck no. And by setting it up that way, by saying, well, we can't afford all boys, so we have to get rid of half the boys to make room for the girls, I think just continued the divisiveness and continued the inequity. It's more of girls wanting to be like boys. How about people wanting to be like people? I have great concern for human beings that don't feel comfortable in their skin. I have spent my whole life not feeling comfortable in my skin. I also have great concern for people who feel that some place that they should rightfully be able to be at, they're being locked out of for reasons beyond their control. I think Anyone, regardless of how they identify gender-wise, deserves a seat at the table. That's the bottom line. The tricky part is, is there an existing table that makes sense? Or do we need to create a new table? Do we need to redefine the tables? Everything I see in the athletic endeavors around the current gender issues hurt women. And I have to be very careful how I say it, because I'm not going to fight back and say this is wrong. I don't know what's right and wrong. I don't think right and wrong are even the right words to use. I have spent the last week or so reading and reading and reading and talking with with friends of mine who are on all sides of the LGBTQ issues and just men and women and equitable behavior in general. Women in my family didn't go to college because why would they? Their job is to get married and stay home and have babies. You know, I didn't have babies until I was formally too old to have them. And that's my continued MO. We have to be able to step back and redefine and rethink and look at how we create opportunities for our kids and how we treat those who aren't like us. I sound preachy here, don't I? <laughs> I don't mean to be. I don't want someone to tell me how to think and I don't want someone to tell me I'm wrong. I'm not wrong. And neither is the person who believes completely opposite than I do. They're not wrong either. I go back to an example that I, that I learned in a conference on dyslexia and how children with visual learning disabilities have a hard time processing what they see. So I want you to think of the letter B, a lowercase b, b as in boy. Now that has a shape to it. It has a straight line and a circle at the bottom that attaches. I'm making one with my hands if you're watching. But that very same shape when turned around is a D. That very same shape turned upside down is a Q. That very same shape turned around is a P. So you have one shape that completely changes what it represents and what it is, depending on how you look at it, depending on whether it's facing you this way or that way, or if you're underneath it or over it. It's the same shape. And if we made a P be a Q and a Q be a D and a D be a B, none of the words that we read would make sense. I know this is a simplistic analogy, but it's what's come to mind for me. The best part is I have a daughter in heaven who couldn't stand watching people let out, left out, who hated when somebody failed because of something they had no control over. And I look at all that's going on in the athletic world and all that's going on in the business world and in the racial world. Let's look at race for a minute. I mean, talk about a way that we decide we need to categorize people. The color of one's skin, the shape of one's eyes, the pronunciation of one's words, the culture from which they come. Yes, these things should be celebrated and glorified, and they're different. We have to stop making believe one is better than the other, because now we're imposing our beliefs on others. All of it. Molly couldn't stand watching somebody not win a prize, because the things that would help them win a prize, they didn't have access to. She just thought it was unfair. And I have her foundation, and I have her love, and and I was feeling so frustrated over this thread on my Facebook page that got so ugly, I took it down. There's just no room for hatred. Rather than fight back, I really just stepped back and have spent a lot of time thinking and I have come to no conclusions other than the way that you figure things out is to learn, 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 to listen, 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 to take part, take part, take part. And I don't know how that is for me or where that looks or what it will look like rather. I do know that I spent most of my life feeling like the odd man out and I still do. I definitely still feel in most areas of my life that I'm on the outside looking in. And that might be my own perception, but that's how I feel. And if that's how I feel, that's my reality. I struggle with these things, but I've never felt more inspired to really step back. You know, and I'll cry because it just means a lot to me. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine and when I first was competing at a national level, it was very commonplace to spit in a cup after your race because that's how they could tell if you were XX chromosome or XY. And I realized now they were doing it to protect the women, right? here we have girls' athletics now and women's athletics, and we need to make sure everyone in this race is actually a woman. They did it to men as well. Everyone, when you compete in the Olympics, everybody spits in the cup. That's just the reality of it. But there were times where you had to lift up your shirt. See, I have boobs. I'm a girl. While this never happened to me, there are stories where girls had to pull down their running shorts to show that they in fact had a vagina and not a penis. These things were done to prove that these girls were girls. And so in our ever-changing reality around how we view gender and identify when and where it should matter and when and where it shouldn't and how it should matter or how it shouldn't, someone from my reality is going to take time to wrap their heads around these kinds of things because that was my reality. I had to prove I was a girl. You know, when I try to step back and look at why did those things happen, did the boys have to pull their pants down? Like these were things that, that rallied through my head all the time. And I ache right now for our gay and lesbian communities, for our queer communities, for our transgender communities. I ache for our racial communities and our religious communities that are still battered and held down and treated poorly. We've made no religious progress ever. There's mass killings and synagogues and temples. And what is that? We just don't learn. And so what am I saying here? <laughs> I'm just emotional, I guess. You know, I just want everyone in the world to be okay inside their skin and to feel that they have a place that they belong and where they fit in and matter. And I guess I want that for myself as well. Why am I sharing all this on the podcast? Because it's a piece of who I am. I'm raising this little boy Jack, who I've assigned that gender to, and I have to be very fluid and open to the fact that he might not feel okay in that body someday. And I've said that before. And how is his mother? Can I best raise him if that happens? You know, and if he grows up feeling wealthy and privileged. How do I help him to be humble and have humility and gratitude? If he's super smart, how do I make sure he's kind to somebody that isn't? Or if he isn't super smart, how do I make him feel that he still matters and he still has value? I look at the ways that we judge success and I just want him to be okay. (laughs) Which brings me to my last analogy, and then I'll stop. Silk factories, you know, silk comes from moths. And so they thought if they peeled the cocoon of the moth so that the whole process was faster, they could make more silk. And if you've ever watched a moth or a butterfly come out of a cocoon or a chick come out of an egg, it's a long process and it's not easy. And some don't survive it. But the whole point of that process is that when they get out of the egg or the cocoon or the uterus, whatever you're in, you now have all of the physical attributes you need to succeed as your new self, as a body outside of the belly, as a butterfly out of the cocoon as a chick out of the egg. And so I can't peel Jack's cocoon for him. I can't crack his egg for him. I have to make sure that he struggles and suffers the way he needs to, the way that life presents itself so that he can develop the skills he needs. Oh, I didn't think I would talk about any of these things really and get so emotional, but I am. The next sort of sets of episodes of this podcast will gear around guests that have things to share and the topics that those guests share about. So obviously guests around grief will be big, guests around motherhood and IVF will be big. I'm going to return the favor of some of the people I spoke with on their podcasts. I was on a couple where they just interview people that do crazy things. (laughs) I'm excited about it because it will open up my podcast world to you and hopefully provide you with more voices to hear. I've learned so much just by listening to the words of others. And I always hope, always hope that my words teach you things as well. I'm really struggling in a really good way. I love it. I love that I'm being forced to learn and question and step back and keep my mouth shut (laughs) and really, really strive to be sure that my words aren't excluding somebody because I'm feeling excluded. Let's step back and look at what that even means and how do we create a solution or begin the process working together. If we don't work together, nothing will work. So anyway, (laughs) happy June. By the time you hear it, it'll be over. This will be playing my last week of track camp. I'll be exhausted. I'm sorry, the tears are coming out. I'll be exhausted, but it's a good exhaustion. As always, be good to yourself, especially if you're struggling. If you have a struggle and an issue, please be good to yourself. Be good to someone else, but not at the expense of yourself, unless it's service-oriented and gratitude, and maybe you're giving up your scooter. So somebody that will never earn a scooter can have it. It's kind of doing both. It's a Molly reference there. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore four, four, four. On Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, 1000tinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.